0: Welcome to Grading the Nutmeg, the podcast of Connecticut history, brought to you by the State Historian at UConn Hartford and Connecticut Explored, the magazine of Connecticut history. I'm Walt Woodward. It's one of the most controversial questions in the state right now. Should Connecticut Institute tolls on its public highways? Some say it's a critically needed fix to fund desperately needed highway repairs. Others say it's just another tax people can't afford and businesses will flee the state to avoid. But Connecticut has a long history of charging people to get from place to place, and transportation expert Richard DeLuca tells us all about it in this special Gate Leg Table interview. DeLuca, author of Post Roads and Iron Horses, and the forthcoming Paved Roads and Public Money from Wesleyan University Press, gives us an expert's view of the history of toll roads in Connecticut, from the early turnpikes, Through the age of the bicycle, the start of the state highway system, and the state parkways and toll roads that were done away with in the 1980s. This is information everyone thinking about the toll question can benefit from hearing. And it's coming up right now on Grating the Nutmeg. So it's a beautiful early summer day. I'm sitting again at the gate leg table in my old colonial house with a friend and an absolute expert on a subject that right now everybody in Connecticut is interested in. I'm with Richard DeLuca, who many of you will know as the author of a fabulous book on early transportation in Connecticut called Post Roads and Iron Horses. Right now he is in press. They are setting the type on the second volume of the Transportation story in Connecticut, paved roads and public money. And he's come today to have a conversation with me sitting at the gate leg table about tolls in Connecticut. Richard, thanks for coming over. Oh, you're welcome, Walter. Everyone in the state has an opinion on whether Connecticut should charge people to get from place to place in Connecticut. You'd think, you know, that this was a brand new thing that had never happened before.
1: No, no, far from it.
0: But in fact, Connecticut has charge people in different ways to get from place to place for a long, long time? When did it begin?
1: Yeah, well, transportation costs money. And tolls have always been considered the fairest, most equitable way to pay for whatever the infrastructure is because the money is coming from the very people who use it and therefore damage it, and therefore require it to be rebuilt. It's considered a very fair way of taxing folk. And it goes back to colonial times. When were the
0: first tolls in Connecticut?
1: The first transportation, in a sense, in in Connecticut, was the ferries of the colonial period. And, of course, they charged a, a fare... Uh, to, to be used, and, and that is in effect a toll. But the first time they were used on highways was right after the revolution when the Connecticut, like every former colony, had to figure out, had to develop some sort of self-sufficient economy that didn't depend on England, but rather dependent on the other 12 former colonies. So they needed a reliable transportation system. This
0: was the era of internal improvements, right? Yeah,
1: exactly, exactly. And uh, in terms of highways, they adopted the English system of building turnpike roads, which in effect meant chartering a private corporation, which the state did, to build a, a, and maintain, that's the important part, to build and maintain a segment of road from point A to point B, and in return for doing that, and putting their investors' money into, these were joint stock companies, so people were contributing tens and hundreds of dollars to buy shares, And that money was put toward building and maintaining a road system.
0: The road that runs right in front of this house was originally one of those turnpikes. Yes, Uh, yes. Connecticut had
1: an extensive network of turnpikes, one of the densest in the country, in fact. Uh, Probably because it had so many town centers. Uh, At that point, well over... 120, maybe, or 40 town centers, points that had to be interconnected. We had so many towns, so we needed so many roads.
0: But all of these turnpikes were private stock ventures, right? Exactly,
1: exactly. And we built over 100 of them. Uh, I believe they chartered maybe 120, and 100 actually resulted in real turnpike road improvements. All over the state, so you had a network eventually, but no one company owned more than, you know, maybe ten to twenty miles was a big turnpike.
0: That when when I have conversations with people about tolls coming to Connecticut, one of the concerns is, you know, paying a toll everywhere you go for everything. Exactly, this turnpike situation sounds like people must have been paying fees, you know, every five minutes.
1: Uh, yeah, and there were uh, again nothing new under the sun. Uh, people complained even then. Some, you know, took extraordinary Some towns took extraordinary measures uh, to uh, avoid having a turnpike company come to their town. Uh, very few succeeded. Uh, one of the uh, one of the things that happened was that people soon found a way around the tolling station and built their own pads using the turnpikes to a point diverting or detouring from the turnpike oh, around funny. the toll station and picking the turnpike up on the other side. So and they
0: would take the toll house bypass. Yeah,
1: <laughs> and those were called shunpikes. And we still have, uh, town of Cromwell, I know for a fact, has still has a shunpike road in town. Uh, that's sort of the name being uh, uh, a remnant of that history. Some towns, like Hamden, built an entire bypass road from the center of town to north of the Cheshire Turnpike's toll station. And just so everybody didn't miss, you know, uh, uh, just so everybody got the idea, they called it Shunpike Road for the longest time, and today it's well, the Shepherd Avenue. The companies must have been really furious about this. Yeah, yeah, uh, because they were losing uh, revenue. The other way they lost revenue was that there were exceptions to paying tolls. So, for example, if you were a local farmer and it, uh, it just so happened that you had to go through a toll station to get to the gristmill to grind your own uh, wheat or corn or whatever, you were exempted from paying the toll. If you were headed to a funeral, you were exempted from paying a toll. Now, it, who set those
0: exemptions?
1: Uh, the legislature. It was in the charter. Yeah. Uh, uh, and, of course, state legislators were exempt from paying toll. What a surprise. Yeah, yeah. They somehow got that in there.
0: So... At some point, did the people just rise up in mutiny and say, we don't want to pay taxes anymore, get rid of these turnpikes?" Well, it, it was a combination of two
1: factors. That was part of it. Uh, but the biggest factor was that most companies found out after not too many years that they weren't making any money the way people thought they were. The charters, in fact, usually had a provision such that when the company made a 12% profit on their investment, the road would automatically become free again and revert back to public ownership, uh, which usually meant to the town in which the road was located. Unfortunately, nobody made anywhere near 12% profit, and 90% of the turnpikes that were chartered were, in fact, to one degree or another, unprofitable. And so uh, corporations started looking after 10, 20 years, looking for a way out. They were required by their charter to keep doing this, but many of them just walked away from the responsibility. They couldn't afford to do it. And, of course, it was the continual maintenance uh which is the problem and is with every transportation system. You know, that famous saying, you build it, you're, you're going to continually rebuild it.
0: Uh, you have to. So this, this kind of first public-private partnership mm-hmm. wasn't so successful. No. Well,
1: it depended on the, the, the individual turnpike, and a lot of times it depended on uh, yeah, the geography of the road some roads were so so located that travelers uh couldn't get around the toll station (laughs) and and those folks made a fair amount of money um one of the longest lasting turnpikes and the very last one to be uh to return to public use was the derby turnpike and that lasted almost 100 years uh raking in the money uh, because first of all it was heavily enough traveled, as uh, it was the main entrance road into New Haven from the Derby area and the lakes there and the geography made it such that you couldn't get around it so the you know they, they made they money. made money they and were but they were the exception to they, the rule yeah, for there the was most about part. 10 or 12 corporations that actually made money the other thing that was part of this, of course, were the bridge crossings that, uh, a little at a time, began to replace the ferries, and those usually came uh, with a toll. So you were, and those and those were course, private investment. Those as well. were private companies as well, and depending on the crossing, of course, uh, those were very well used, and uh, usually, again. Uh, Usually profitable, but not
0: always. But these, these turnpike <clears throat> companies, for the most part, were out of the picture by when? Uh, well, they began in, 17,
1: in the 1790s, uh, kind of peaked in the 1820s, 30s. And by the 1850s, uh, Connecticut had pretty much built all the turnpikes they were going to build. Uh, or I should say, chartered all the turnpikes they were going to charter, and then it just became a question of, you know, who hung around the longest, who who stayed. Some companies, like I said, started to walk away as early, probably as the 1810s or 20s.
0: Did the turnpikes produce a good highway system? I mean, in 1850. Well, could people... what they
1: did was they allowed stagecoach companies to develop and it was the stagecoach folks that kind of stitched the 13 colonies together and in doing so actually made some very good money and provided some very good commercial connections for the first regional economies to start to take hold. So what is usually the story in in transportation providing the infrastructure is not usually a profitable venture. But using it, and, char- and of course, stagecoaches charge fares and, and uh, for passengers and cargo. So using the infrastructure, not being required to maintain it at all, uh, turned out to be a very profitable
0: venture. So I've got to think that the railroads just played habit with the roads.
1: Yeah, yeah. When the railroads uh came along in the eighteen forties and uh and thereafter, um of course there was a lot of things happening at the at, at the time. You're you're making the transition to an industrialized economy now and the railroads were key to that. They provided the uh kind of uh, uh let's say, large-scale distribution network that manufacturing required. And it was faster and it was cheaper. And so, yeah, the railroads definitely took the focus off of uh, highway travel and were, for pretty much the remainder of the 19th century,
0: uh, the way to get around. So did these old turnpike roads generally fall into disrepair, or what? Yeah, kind of well, it depended it? on the
1: the uh, the conscientiousness of the individual towns, because once the turnpike companies uh, abandoned them, and, and the, the legislators, uh, if you if you look at the laws that were being passed in the 1850s and 60s and 70s, they just kept passing laws to give these companies ways to get out of their charter commitment, uh, rather than just simply walk away, in a sense, illegally. Um, The the roads reverted to town ownership once again, and then it depended on the individual town, the degree to which uh, they were maintained. And usually, the more heavily traveled roads, I mean, the towns had reason uh, business reasons to keep them in repair, uh, but it was a hit-and-miss kind of hodgepodge. I,
0: you know, I've read stories into <clears throat> right up into the early 20th century of people trying to get around the state, and, and they yeah, just describe yeah. it as a pretty yeah. awful undertaking.
1: And then, of course, you add to that the the uh, the natural geography of the state, which has, from the earliest days of the colony, made east-west travel, the, the hills and valleys made east-west travel much more difficult than valley travel, you know, going up and down the Connecticut River Valley or the Naugatuck River Valley. So a lot of the uh, development that did happen took place uh, in the river valleys. And of course, those, that's where the first railroads were built.
0: Because it was easy. Yeah, it was yeah. easier. They didn't require the, the bridge crossings. It's funny that you would say that about the difficulties of east-west travel in this part of the state. I had a friend who, with his son, rode a recumbent bicycle across the United States. Wow. And I talked to him about his trip, and I said, well, what was the hardest part for you? I expected the Rockies or, you know, some of the... He said <laughs> the, the first two states, Massachusetts and Connecticut... <laughs> were the yeah. hardest of all because yeah. the road systems weren't built to accommodate you know, the kind of grades that they have in Colorado and the other places. He says it was just hell pulling all the stuff we had to carry through yeah. Connecticut.
1: It's true, and, and you don't think about it, but even the, the rivalry that existed from the colonial period between Hartford and New Haven, for example, the state's twin capitals, was sort of uh, enhanced by the fact that it was so difficult to get from Hartford to New Haven. You had the grade near uh, what today is Lamentation Mountain on, on I-91. Sure, the, the and it, you know, for a horse and wagon, that was uh, almost impassable.
0: Well, that was a, a substantial part of the reason why the legislature had held alternating sessions in New yeah. Haven and then Hartford right. until 1877, because right. because the legislators from different parts of the state were so inconvenienced to go to one part of the state or the other, they they yeah, made it
1: depending on, on on where you were coming from, and uh, that really wasn't conquered that that. Uh, Geo- uh, geographic separation until the internal combustion engine
0: and the automobile. Well, so at some point, I mean, we didn't have a state department of transportation then. It, all of this stuff was done no. by town. The legislature exactly. does. So at some point, somebody's got to start thinking well, you know, we need to have a more rational system. How did that come about?
1: Well, believe it or not, it came about as a result of one of the most overlooked transportation inventions or technologies of the 19th century: the bicycle. Seriously. Seriously, um, it was well, the. Well, Connecticut was a
0: center of bicycle production, right? Yes, Albert it was. Pope and Albert Pope, the Columbia
1: bicycle. Exactly, and Hartford uh, was a national leader in. Uh, bicycle manufacturing, which began in the 1880s with the old, what we would today call the old-fashioned high-wheel bicycles. The bone crushers. Yeah, uh, and the, or- the ordinary bicycle, you know, with the huge uh, diameter front wheel and the very small diameter rear wheel. Um, and that was a bicycle that attracted a lot of, a lot of users, but mainly athletic types, Obviously it was not the easiest thing to ride. Uh, But then came the safety bicycle in the 1890s, which was basically uh, equal size wheels and pretty similar uh, chain driven, pretty similar to the bicycles we have today. Uh, And that made it possible for women, children, everyone to bicycle. And these folks organized and they started a movement nationally for good roads because they would produce some of the, the, the first uh, what you'd call travel guides maybe. They, there was a book called the Connecticut Road Book that had all of the, and, and this is for sale to bicyclists, had all of the, the uh, bikeable roads, if you will, in the state and had them rated. By their condition and how steep they were, whether they were sandy or gravelly or whatever the surface was. And so these folks really said, look, we need better roads And here. when
0: is this being published? The, this
1: is being published in the 1890s, maybe even the late
0: 1880s, uh, but thereabouts, with the safety bicycle so, mainly. but So these bike riders want to go from town to town, and yeah. they stimulate this movement. To get better roads. Right, and
1: Albert Pope was a, a leader in the Good Roads Movement, one of several uh, New Englanders uh, who pushed for this and formed eventually the League of American Wheelmen. Right. Um, and they would lead tours, uh, multi-state tours. I mean, there are folks that traveled. There's a fellow who wrote a book, 10,000 Miles on a Bicycle. He went all over New England on a high a high, uh, ordinary bicycle. Yeah, oh, one of, those yeah, bikes? One, one, one wow. of the high wheel bikes made by the Pope Manufacturing Company in Hartford, and he describes uh, going through Connecticut in the 1880s. This would have been um, on such a bicycle, and the need to get better roads. And so, by the 1890s and 1895, actually, the legislature responded by forming a State Highway Commission, which was the uh, predecessor of the State Highway Department and, of course, today's Department of Transportation.
0: So this is at the turn of the 20th century, right?
1: Actually, yes, earlier, you know, because... And the automobile is not an issue at the moment. So uh, it's it's Connecticut's first road system was in response to the bicycle.
0: You know the the there are all of these beautiful bike trails and the old rails to trails mm-hmm. places, but the the East Coast Greenway has actually built near here miles of bicycle roads uh, that people use now recreationally. Right. But those those roads, while they're very carefully made, they're different than an automobile road. Were these. The, this push by the League of American Wheelmen. No,
1: it? no, it was just to get a a well-graveled
0: level roadway. So I don't mind sharing the road with horses and no, exactly. wagons, and no. I just want it to be something that right. I can bike on. Exactly,
1: and I want to know I can go a ways on it so that when I cross from one town into another,
0: the road's not going to fall apart. This is amazing to me. These bicycle riders... Are starting this good roads movement and not just in Connecticut but all over America, right. I would assume. Right. But they're not anticipating the huge change that's right around the corner, right? Exactly.
1: Exactly. So, that doesn't that also comes in the 1890s, but you know, when the automobile, when the, the Duryea brothers of Springfield kind of made the first automobile trip into Connecticut by driving from Springfield to Hartford. Um, 1890s sometime, you know, it was considered, you know, nobody took it all that seriously. And, And most of the folks who made the transition, Albert Pope being one of them, from bicycle manufacturing to automobile manufacturing, considered it a toy for the wealthy, and they aimed at that market. You know, the bicycle was something that was available to
0: everyone. The bicycle was everybody's transportation, right. and, and the super-rich right. could have their... Yeah, you the know, cars their... would never be that prevalent, was yeah. the,
1: the assumption at that point. So course-
0: when did it become clear that this new form of transportation was going to take over? Yeah, well, in 1907, the uh, state
1: highway commissioner was a fellow by the name of McDonnell. They had been building roads, you know, uh, for almost from 1897 or so when the first plan was put together. So for about a decade, they had been doing this to try to, to uh, satisfy the needs of bicyclists. But McDonald realized that by that point, even after 10 years, this was not going well, because first of all, the focus was on the individual towns. So even when roads got built, they weren't properly maintained, and so it was sort of throwing good money after bad to keep building more roads. And the other thing was the town was also determined which roads were built. And McDonald's saw that that, you know, that wasn't give, providing a network of any kind. It was providing a little piece of improvement here and another little piece over there. And if you had someone locally who had enough political influence, he was determining where the road was improved and so on.
0: So it's the same patchwork quilt yeah, of roads exactly. you had with the It, it was nothing
1: confidence. that you could depend on for long-distance travel. So McDonald was the first one who went to the legislature and said, look, we've got to give the state more responsibility here. Take it away from the towns. First of all, uh, you know, to, to, to make it a uniform system, he developed the idea of a trunk line system, which we today would call a state highway system. Certain routes are more important than others, and they should have a priority in terms of being improved and maintained. And he developed that first trunk line system in the 1910s, thereabouts, um, and it was about a 1,000 miles of, of uh, state, what we would today call state
0: highways. And how were those state highways funded? Who, who paid for their construction? Well,
1: this was all now because... Highways in, uh, had always been a public responsibility, namely the individual towns. Uh, it, it just historically remains so. And so now these improvements are being made not by private corporations, but by, with public tax dollars.
0: And was uh, there any pushback that you're spending too much money on this, or was it seen as a well, public good? Well, by
1: 1907, the other thing that was happening was that the automobile was uh, starting to show up in numbers that were getting was getting everyone nervous if you were in the transportation business. This was, yes, uh, they, a lot of them were expensive and owned by wealthy people, but then Henry Ford came along with the with his idea of, no, this is, I'm going to make one that's so good and so cheap that everybody can afford one. Well, now the, that changed the entire ballgame.
0: So did the state <clears throat> road system develop quickly? Well, it took from
1: about 1907 into the early 20s, I'd say by 21, 23, the state, uh, because what they, what they found, first of all, was that the, the early autos that were using the gravel uh, dirt highway system were soon going too fast and tearing up the surface so that they had to go to a paved um, surface, a macadam or paved, some sort of something sturdier that could withstand the weight and speed of an automobile. And so McDonald's job quick, soon became not just fixing as many uh, highways as possible, but p- literally paving the state for the automobile. And by the mid, the early 20s, actually, most of that was was completed. So Connecticut
0: had a paved state road system by the mid-20s. Yeah, by the mid-20s, so. yes, definitely. Yeah. Now, at any point along this way, as the state's building this highway system, is anyone saying we ought to charge tolls? No. Um, so when did that... Well, actually,
1: well, the other thing that was pushing McDonald in, in, back in 1907 to take state responsibility for this was that the hodgepodge situation had gotten so bad that a corporation was formed in uh, Boston and also in Hartford. Uh, it was called the New York to Boston auto boulevard company. Uh, And this was a group of private investors who were proposing that were being chartered by Massachusetts and Connecticut to build a long-distance, old-fashioned toll road turnpike, but paved for the automobile from New York to Boston. And McDonald had to, you know, uh, it's like people were looking backward to that old system as a possible way to deal with the automobile. But the actions that
0: McDonald took sort of guaranteed that it was the state that was going to step in. So is that how we got the Merritt Parkway? Was it that kind of thing? Is there a connection between these? No. No. Um, What happened
1: is that with the paving of the first, state highway system in in Connecticut. And with the increase in the number of automobiles, and you have to remember, this is boom time for, you know, we're going from hundreds to thousands to hundreds of thousands of automobiles in the span of a generation or so. And so uh, what's showing up for the first time and it began on the post road down in the Greenwich to New Haven area uh, was this newfangled thing called a traffic jam i mean the a road a highway uh, nobody ever had to worry about it in the, in the days of uh, horse and buggies but you know highways have a capacity limit and you can only get so many vehicles past the point in an hour uh, and if there's more vehicles that want to Go past that point in an hour, you're going to have a traffic jam. And so the Merritt Parkway was in response to the constant congestion on the lower post road. Uh, and, and highway engineers had to literally invent... It's almost a new mode of transportation. Uh, it's called the limited access highway. It's a, it's a highway where... You can't use it. You can only get on at specific points and get off at specific points. And there are no at-grade intersections. All crossroads go either above you or below you. And so in between exits, you can move with a lot more speed. So in effect, this new idea of a limited-access highway, which kind of came out of the City Beautiful movement and and uh, work in Central Park in New York, where they first tried to separate foot traffic from vehicle traffic, um, that, that just kind of grew. And eventually, in, in, uh, it was pr- heavily promoted in New York by Robert Moses, who built a parkway uh, from New York headed right for Connecticut. Uh, the Hutchinson River Parkway. And by the time it got to Westchester, you know, people in Connecticut were saying, yeah, maybe we ought to have one of those too. That's a way to solve this traffic problem on the post road. We'll build a parallel road inland and we'll take all of the cars away from the post road and leave just the commercial vehicles with, because that is where the commerce is along the old post road.
0: Now, I have seen pictures of the early construction of the Merritt where they are putting in a toll house. Was no, it no. designed to be a toll road? No,
1: it wasn't. Um, the Merritt Parkway, now uh, terminology here, the, the Merritt Parkway goes from the New York line to the um, Houstonic uh, River in uh, Milford, and uh, the piece from the Housatonic East, of course, is called the Wilbur Cross. That's a different project, a different, uh, just a continuation of the Route 15 as a limited access highway. It was only when they built the the, the Merritt Parkway was actually paid for out of regular transportation, uh, or I should say, highway funds which at that time were came mainly from a gasoline tax. Uh, and
0: this was in the Depression. So was this federal money? Is the federal government now yeah, getting involved the, the, in funding?
1: They were to a very slight extent, only because Connecticut uh, was simply not on anybody's list of favorite states in Washington at the time for political reasons. So Connecticut did get some federal money uh, to help with the Merritt Parkway, but they were expecting millions of dollars and only got hundreds of thousands.
0: They just didn't have the political pull. So that was a state-funded project. Exactly, from the gasoline tax. It- so those those images of tolls that I saw that I thought were associated with the Merritt must have been something else, or well, are they the Wilbur happened, Cross? What happened? What
1: happened was when they when it came time to build the Wilbur Cross extension, uh, and now this is now we're talking late thirties, nineteen thirty eight thereabouts, when the first section of the Merritt Parkway actually opened, people started looking ahead and saying, you know what? this road is eventually gonna go to Boston. So we're gonna propose, and and it was the first sort of long-range highway plan that the state had. Uh, They published the idea of building a cross-state parkway, or highway, uh, that would extend the Merritt Parkway uh, through the Hartford area and onto the Massachusetts border somewhere in the vicinity of of Union. And so they knew that was, at that time, that I believe was considered a $100 million project. So that was, I mean, that was starting to be real money now. And so they needed a way to, to finance that. And so they financed building the Wilbur Cross Parkway by putting tolls on the Merritt Parkway, which was already completed.
0: How interesting.
1: And what they found out was that these little ten cent toll booths were raking in all sorts of money. Uh be- yeah, because of the it was a it was a growth period for auto travel. You know, the, the everybody was you know, the automobiles were cheap enough so that they, they went from being a toy for the rich to a necessity for just about anyone. And so, uh, you know, the, they put the toll booth up just to sort of see what would happen, and they took in so much money that they said, you know what, I think we'll put another toll booth a little further down the road. <laughs> and they just kept doing that, both first for the Merritt Parkway and then also
0: for the Wilbur Cross. Uh, but that was the only toll system in the state at the time, right? Exactly, except for bridge crossings. Sure. Right. And the few remaining ferries. Then yeah. World War II comes, and of course, cars are rationed. How, what is the impact of World War II on the state's road system? Well, it's um,
1: it, the story gets a little bit complicated here because for most of the state's history, the federal government didn't play much of a role in terms of uh, transportation uh, infrastructure. But what happens is once the state starts preparing for the automobile and starts paving a state highway system, the federal government gets involved as well. And they, and they uh, build what might be called the first interstate highway system, which were just paved two-lane roads that were designated to be of interstate, not just intrastate importance. But now it's important to get from, again, New York to Boston to Hartford to Providence. So certain routes uh, are designated and paid for by federal money that's also coming, no, at this point it's not coming from a gasoline tax, it's just coming from the general budget. So, you'd be got, like US 1, the exactly. Boston Post Road. Connecticut yeah. had a handful of those, the US designations, US 6, 1, uh, 5, uh, 7, you know, but literally a handful, but they were important enough corridors that
0: they went from state to state. And are these built in the 40s, the no, 30s? No, they're the-
1: built, they're built in, um, in the 20s, uh, beginning and uh, continuing uh, from there. Uh, but what happens is when the state gets into the uh, parkway business, the limited access highway business, so does the federal government. It doesn't take them long to, to see that certain of these routes are going to be of interstate importance. So the federal government in the 1940s, during the war, comes up and designates a national interstate highway network or system uh, and, and tries to figure out which routes in which states are going to receive some sort of federal money and assistance uh, to be built by the states. The problem is they determine the system system in the 1940s, but they can't agree on how to fund it. Uh, one thing they do agree is that they cannot put tolls on a federal highway. That, that seemed to be, uh, although it's obviously, it turned out not to be, but for uh, a lot of people that was a constitutional uh, issue, almost an issue of sovereignty. You know, you can't federal government can't tax a state
0: piece they, of land the, to... A, yeah. a noble idea, but they got over it. Yeah, they got over it eventually. So so they planned this interstate highway system, or they yeah. say they laid the concept right. out, but it doesn't really get no. going until the 50s, but right? But the
1: states know it's coming. There's just no money yet because the federal government can't agree on how to finance it. So right after the war traffic you know which had been much less during the war years uh everything starts to boom after the war not just the population but the auto ownership the desire to travel and there's that move to the
0: suburbs people are getting out of the cities. exactly
1: so So what and, and that's a movement that started in the 20s with the automobile but just kind of took the numbers just you know really boomed after the second world war um and the states had to figure out what what are we going to do there's no federal money but the traffic on the the lower post road by the 19 late 40s early 50s was as bad as it had been in the 1920s so in and, and so was traffic on the Merrimackway. yeah so they had to do something else so a lot of the states several, um, Maine and Pennsylvania and New Jersey and eventually Connecticut said, look, we're just going to build what we need and we're going to build them as a toll road. And so the idea came for the Connecticut Turnpike, which was Connecticut's first toll road, uh, limited access toll road. Uh, and that was built in the starting in fifty-two and and and
0: opened I guess by fifty-six. Now, the merit was at that time charging tolls. Yes, but it wasn't built to be a toll road. The New England Turnpike was, was from, from, from from the cons- beginning from designed. the beginning. Yeah,
1: and in fact, uh, the state—if you look at the legislation. Uh, of what was then called the Greenwich to Killingly Expressway Mm -hmm. and not the Connecticut Turnpike, Um, they had also laid out a state network of express highways or limited access highways uh, in other corridors that the state had hoped to build. Uh, And the legislation shows that they were hoping to use excess toll money from the Connecticut turnpike to put toward expanding the system throughout Connecticut.
0: Now, was there a lot of pushback in the 50s when this is starting up against tolls coming to Connecticut? Were people upset? No, no, not not particularly. Uh, The demand, the need was
1: so great. It's hard for us... Well, it's not hard for us to imagine if you're stuck
0: down on the Connecticut yeah. Turnpike today, but it, it was... It's exactly. a bit harder to imagine <laughs> a booming economy in the States so great yes, exactly. that people are coming in such numbers. <laughs> that, yeah.
1: Although you have
0: more time to contemplate
1: that idea if you're on the <laughs> Connecticut Turnpike today. yeah. Uh, but anyway, uh, no, I just think the need was so great. Uh, and, there, and the price tag, was so high. Now we're talking for the Connecticut Turnpike alone, from Greenwich to Killingly, four hundred and fifty million dollars in nineteen fifty dollars. You know, I understand Greenwich. Why Killingly? Well, uh, another long story that I'll try to make short. Um, the the of course they knew already. The state did that. The federal uh, interstate highway in that corridor was intended to go all the way along the shoreline from uh, Greenwich to uh, New Haven onto New London and eventually to Rhode Island. But there was a push in one particular legislative session um, instituted, I believe, by a Yukon professor, believe it or not, um, Who was trying to popularize the idea that, hey, since we're building these new highways, we could maybe use them to open up an area that is not, you know, uh, that economically productive? So it's an economic
0: development, you take the road. We could use
1: the road as a tool. For economic so we're development, we're literally
0: going to drive business to Killingly.
1: Exactly, yeah. and we're going to put it up the the Quinnipaw Valley the same way you know when the old textile mills yeah. used to be there, because the mill industry was already declining by the fifties, and that was not a particularly prosperous area of the state. It had once been very prosperous, and so they were hoping that the turnpike would stimulate the economy in that area. So. Uh, and hence it, takes a, it takes a bend in uh, Waterford uh, and goes due north, even though the interstate system was going to go due east.
0: So is this, this state turnpike system and the interstate system, are they actually being constructed together at the same time? No. Or, so it's not parallel development. The state is anticipating.
1: Well, when the state built the Connecticut Turnpike, the federal government still had not decided uh, on how to finance. There was still no real money to build interstate highways. Uh, What what states were doing was building little pieces of... uh, highways inside of urban areas just using whatever federal money they had. They knew these roads were coming, but they didn't have the money to build them in full like they did the Connecticut Turnpike. So they would build little pieces of I, uh, of the, the old Whitehead Highway in Hartford or a little piece in New London or a little piece here that they knew eventually would hook up to something. Yeah. But yeah. they built as much as they could afford.
0: So how did we get the interstates? When did that happen?
1: In 56, under under President Eisenhower, the federal government uh, decided that the way to go was a federal gas tax. And to dedicate that money uh, to the building of the interstate highway system so... They created the Highway Trust Fund, which was the recipient of the federal gas tax and other associated taxes on petroleum products and things like that. And again, because of the boom, it didn't take long like like it did with the tolls on the Merritt Parkway for the money to start piling up. And so uh, the federal program turned out to be a 90-10 program, meaning that the federal government provided 90% of the cost of these highways, but the states had to come up with the other 10% of matching funds. So, the the boom that happened with that that went along with all of this uh, interstate construction in the 50s was a boom in uh, even though it was only 10%, it was a lot of money to states, and they were required to come up with it fairly quickly. So it led to an expanded state highway program and, as well.
0: And the interstate system in Connecticut was in the 50s and expanded a lot in the 60s as well, right? It filled yes,
1: out. Yeah. It, as it turned out, the, the system as it was first conceived in the 40s in Connecticut was simply I-95, I-84 and I-91, uh, and the total national system at that time was 40,000 miles long, uh, and the intent was to connect all of the major cities in the United States with an interstate highway. Once the money started to flow, the federal government tweaked the system in the, uh, and it ultimately expanded it to 42,000 500 miles nationally and that gave another uh, oh, I'm, I, again the number eludes me but maybe another hundred miles or so to the uh to the state of connecticut because this mileage was was allocated to each uh state uh and so that gave us a designation for interstate 291 around hartford uh, for interstate, what was supposed to be Interstate 86, from Hartford to Providence across the central part of the state, basically the Route 6 corridor, uh, and a few other small pieces.
0: Which didn't uh, ever which, get finished. Right.
1: And it turned out that the the contrast Between the 1940s and the 19 when the system was first conceived, and the 1960s when it was first built and people saw the impact that it was having, public attitudes changed dramatically, not against tolls, but against highways, period. Uh, Because all that was resulting was more traffic, a lot of air pollution, uh, a lot of urban uh, neighborhood destruction, Uh, and people were seeing all of this and saying, wait a minute, you know, we don't need any more highways, you know. So as it turned out, all of the added mileage to the Connecticut system, of all of the added mileage, none of it, was built the way it was originally intended. Because
0: of public resistance to the overall system. Exactly.
1: It started in West Hartford with demonstrations in 1969 against uh, Interstate 291, which was proposed to go through mostly Metropolitan District water reservoir land in West Hartford. and the and the folks just simply you know the whole environmental movement was just beginning, and and the the first whole Earth images were coming back from the moon, so that we saw the the sort of fragility of the whole planet, and people were genuinely concerned and so, scared about so the impact.
0: So became anti-highway construction in the beginning.
1: 70s? Yeah, in the nineteen sixty. Nine was the beginning, and it extended through the 70s. And, the, and this was not just Connecticut. This was happening nationally.
0: Now, were these interstate highways, toll roads at that time? They weren't, were they? No,
1: the interstates were simply funded by gas tax But money. we
0: did have the state, the New England Turnpike, that was a toll road. Exactly. And we got out of that. We, we, we stopped charging tolls at some point.
1: Oh, that was simply a state decision. In uh, 1986, well, let me try to explain it this way. Along with the boom of people and cars and, and everything else in the 19th, in the post-war decades, the baby boom generation. Uh, along with that came a boom in uh, all sorts of social programs. That came with uh, President Johnson's Great Society, right? And and all of them carried some, you know, although there was federal money involved, it, it 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 carried a lot of state matching fund requirements. So the state budget was going crazy, was booming as well, and and you had this whole tug of war now that between social programs that were the states were committing to things like. Uh, Medicare, Medicaid, and... uh, Infrastructure
0: uh, programs.
1: Yeah, and and other more, what some people would consider more basic, you know, uh, and longstanding programs like infrastructure. Yeah. Okay. And the the tug of war was to balance the budget. And that started to become a problem uh, as early as the 1970s. So what we're seeing today in Hartford Is simply an extension of what began there, and the issue is basically the same. How do we afford to do both?
0: But it, given that the state is struggling both to pay for infrastructure and for the social needs of its people, you would think they would be unlikely to stop charging tolls on their state turnpike. You would think. But what happened? Well, Two things happened.
1: Uh, to the the first thing that happened was in the mid seventies, nineteen seventy five, I believe. the uh, The tongue of war was uh, was so great that the legislature legislature thought they could solve the budget problem by abolishing the highway fund, the state highway fund, not the federal one now, but the state highway fund, which had been, again, the recipient of all the gas tax money and, and and it was dedicated money that could only be used to build more highways And they instead they abolished the fund and threw all of the revenue into the general fund and now all of a sudden Transportation which had been a dedicate had a dedicated revenue stream since the 1920s had to compete with the rest of the items in the state budget to get money and not surprisingly, it didn't fare that well. And, and, and the budgets in the 1970s started to, to drop, and the maintenance, especially the maintenance, uh, was constantly being deferred uh, because there was no money to do it uh, properly. And uh, the result by the mid-'80s was the collapse of the Mianus River Bridge. Okay, that was a direct result, a preventable uh, accident uh, that resulted from the lack, underfunding of transportation in the 1970s. Uh, And the other thing that happened within months, uh, I believe first, and then the bridge collapsed, was a a very large uh, collision on the, I-95 toll booth uh, in Stanford, I believe, in which uh, a half a dozen people were killed. And uh, that got everyone, you know, all of a sudden, toll stations, because we literally at that point had to stop, pay a toll, and then, you know, rejoin the, the highway traffic. Toll stations were uh, m- points of large traffic congestion. Sure. And they became a source of accidents as well, and so in response to the death of these folks in this toll uh, accident um, on I-95, the state decided, the legislature did in '86 or thereabouts, to remove all of the tolls from all of the bridges and highways in Connecticut over the period, and they did that over the. By the end of the 1980s, they, you know. How did they
0: offset that revenue loss? Yeah,
1: well, that was, what do you think they did? I don't know. They raised the gas tax. My goodness. My goodness. Uh, So that the gas tax, which had been, um, at that point, about a quarter a gallon, um, went to, at its peak, 39 cents a gallon in the 90s. And...
0: Still, I mean, uh, you know, that's that's basically how they tried to do it. So, so in the mid seventies, there's an infrastructure maintenance problem in the state road system that you're saying doesn't really get solved very well in the seventies.
1: No, it doesn't get it doesn't get solved until the Mayanus Bridge collapses, and the, and the legislature immediately reestablishes a dedicated
0: fund for transportation.
1: It's called today the Special Transportation so, Fund.
0: Okay, so they did attend to infrastructure in the mid-'70s. No, in the mid-'80s. I'm sorry, in the mid-'80s. But that only lasted so long because for the yeah,
1: it was last... T- it was a 10-year program. They, they had a $5 billion push in the mid-'80s to the mid-'90s Fix everything, mostly bridges, but highways as well, paving um, to fix everything that had been sort of overlooked the decade before. So that, uh, in, so in a sense, in in a uh, a transportation sense, I guess you'd say the Mianus bridge collapse was, uh, you know, ha- had some good results in the sense that it forced Connecticut. To face this issue of underfunding in transportation. And over the ten next 10 years, they did a lot of catching up, and we had one of the better systems in the country. Because you've got to remember, every every state was facing similar issues. Uh, the bridge collapse forced Connecticut to deal with it a lot quicker than some other states.
0: So, so in the mid-'90s, the infrastructure is pretty good. It's yeah. been maintained, well-repaired. Mm-hmm. Now it's 30 years later. Okay. Well, What's the, happened since then?
1: The other thing that happened, let's, let's just back up just a, a minute into the 60s again. The other thing that happened during the 60s as a result of this anti-highway uh, push was that uh, people started looking to the federal and state governments to take responsibility for other transportation systems as well so that in the 19, in 1970 or by 1970 both the federal and state governments now had departments of transportation no longer just state highway departments and so the the, the state of connecticut is now responsible not just for the highways and the bridges and the ferries but for the trains and the buses and the airports and the seaports. And so not only are the social programs booming, but the amount of transportation
0: that needs to be dealt with has, has literally more than doubled. So you have a brand new source of competition for transportation funding it's all these new authorities, Exactly. Right? Exactly. And so the the bill, the the
1: general bill for transportation is growing tremendously uh, because of the highway construction in the 20s, 30s, and and, and so on. Well, because of the automobile, the rail network in the state and the country has deteriorated rapidly. Most of the railroads are in bankruptcy, and eventually the federal government takes over um much of the rail system and this and again these programs developed that are partly federal funds and partly state funds. And so to keep the transportation system going, the state share is getting bigger and bigger and bigger. So now you're competing not only with social programs but transportation within or highways, I should say, within transportation
0: are competing with all the other modes. So the net effect is not good for the road system over the past 20, 25 years.
1: Yeah, it's, it's a... Um, well, the, the problem comes in with finding a way to balance all of this And so the issue of tolls, for example, which is the hot-button issue of the moment, from a transportation point of view, is a relatively simple thing. You need the funds. This is the fairest way to do it. And so you would think it would be a very easy thing to do. But what makes it such a, a volatile issue politically is that it's embedded in these other two bigger problems, how do you compete with other uh, transfer other transportation money, and how do you compete? How do you balance the general budget with all these social programs? So it's a big, much bigger, much more complicated revenue issue than simply tolls for highways.
0: But now it seems that the legislature is thinking about that or has tried to do that by sequestering, I think in the last session they they did a lockbox thing for transportation. yeah funding. Governor
1: Governor Malloy, uh, his his administration, especially in the second term, uh, tried to tackle this problem head on um, in in several on several different fronts. And one of the things they did was they they came up with a 30 year, uh, plan in 2015 that Malloy presented to the legislature, a 30-year transportation plan that tried to balance all of these issues. You know, what do we need in terms of highways, in terms of rail, in terms of, you know, uh, public transit? Um, and the, And that particular plan had a $100 billion price tag on it. For the next 30 years. And then the obvious question was, how are we going to pay for this? Okay, And one of the things they did was, or I should say Governor Malloy did, was set up a finance panel that tried to find ways to resolve this issue, to come up with, to keep the, the transportation fund solvent for long enough to do this plan. And uh, they did come up with a, with a uh, a list of recommendations. Uh, not surprisingly, first on the list was tolls. Uh, it's a source of it's a it's a decent source of revenue. It's 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 a lot, and it is steady and and consistent. And that's what transportation funding needs. You have to have money that's dedicated. So that, because these projects are take years to complete, and the, and the engineers have to know that the
0: money's going to be there five years from now to finish what they start today. So, so from a common sense standpoint, the benefit of tolls is that the people using, as you said, the people using the product, using the infrastructure, are paying for the infrastructure. Right,
1: exactly. So and why, a, why... And another side issue that is peculiar to Connecticut is that, again, for geographic reasons, we are a big pass-through state. So you have a lot of our traffic, especially on the post road and in, in, uh, on I-95, let's say, are out-of-state vehicles. And once you took the tolls away from the Connecticut turnpike, if those folks don't stop and buy gas somewhere in Connecticut, we're not getting a penny from them. But they're contributing tremendously to the damage along those routes. Some people estimate that as much as 40% of the traffic in that corridor is from New York and
0: and Massachusetts. You know, it sounds like you're making a really compelling case for this, but there's a whole lot of resistance to this whole idea of tolls. Why do you think? I, I... you know, I think in part because people
1: don't understand the issue. And, and it is not a simple, like I said, once you tackle, if you, if you took everything else out of the picture and just talked transportation, it really is a no-brainer. But it's not.
0: Because it's because mixed in it's with mixed other in taxes and with funding. These, and...
1: With these issues that Connecticut has been kicking down the road, literally, since the 1970s. Uh, this competition, this need to fund all of these other governmental responsibilities that uh, just broadly called social programs, as well as some of the uh, as well as transportation and and other things. So and these those other responsibilities have grown tremendously, and so have the transportation responsibilities because we've taken on other modes now. Okay, How do you pay for all of it? It's a tremendously complicated problem.
0: So as we sit here right now, it's anticipated that the legislature will come back in special session Yes yeah, there's summer. a
1: there's a draft bill to uh, institute tolls that's supposedly going to be taken up in a special session.
0: So do you think we're going to end up with a toll system in Connecticut?
1: I don't see how they cannot do it. I truly don't see how they cannot do it. Uh, and if they do, it, we will be applying, in a sense, to transportation, the same political solution we've applied to the social program. We're just kicking it down the road for another year or two. If they do. If they don't. Uh, yeah, if they, if right. they don't. The, the issue is not going to go away. It's just like the other side of the of the budget issue with the state pensions and the underfunding of all of those social responsibilities. We've just, we've been kicking that can for 40 years. And problems, if you look back at the O'Neill administration and up through Weicker when they instituted the income tax which was supposed to solve all of this and never, and you know, uh, uh, really didn't, these these, Budget deficits and discrepancies were in the hundreds of millions of dollars. Now we're talking $2 billion over two years, with more to come in succeeding years. Wow. So, you know, an issue that could have been solved for a few hundred million is now requiring a few billion, and it's not going to get any cheaper next year.
0: Well, on that happy note, Richard DeLuke, this has been, this just been a... Fascinating conversation. and I thank you for sitting down with us. You thank know you, so much about highways. Thank you. I think uh, uh, many people will be looking for the second volume of your transportation study, Paved Roads and Public Money. It's being published by Wesleyan University Press, and you're looking for it around when? Uh,
1: next spring. So, there, the spring of 2020.
0: There you go. So, while, uh, while we're waiting to see what happens with tolls, we can all read the history of the highway system and how we got to this point.
1: We'll have to put it on audio for all those folks that are stuck in traffic on <laughs> well, I-95. While they're working on the toll <laughs> yeah, boost. That's yeah. great.
0: Richard DeLuca, thanks so much. Thank you, Walter. Thanks for listening. We wish to thank Richard DeLuca. Watch for his book, Paved Roads and Public Money, issued by Wesleyan University Press in early 2020. And to read more great Connecticut stories, subscribe to Connecticut Explored at ctexplored.org. To listen to more great Connecticut history podcasts, subscribe to Grading the Nutmeg on your favorite podcast app or download them at gradingthenutmeg.lipson.com. I'm Walt Woodward, hoping you'll join us next time for another episode of Grading the Nutmeg.